Well, this is Missions Month at ACAC, and during Missions Month, we don't focus on what God can do for us. We focus on what we are called to do for God. And in so doing, we discover we're also doing something for ourselves. Now, this weekend, I want to run the risk of sounding like somebody who's desperately trying to hold on to the past. But I want to assure you, I have no need to hold on to the past. I have no interest in holding on to the past. But I do want to hold on to the truth, and I want to hold on to the gospel. And that's why I've selected the topic we're going to focus upon today. To launch us into this teaching, let me quote the words of Jesus as recorded in Acts chapter 1, the latter part of the 8th verse. Jesus said, you, meaning his followers, shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. And the title of my teaching today is, What's in a Word? What's in a Word? Let's look to the Lord together in prayer. Father, in these coming moments, I know and you know that I cannot discharge my calling and my responsibility without the empowering of the Holy Spirit. And we know that we can't possibly grasp your truth or apply it without the empowering of the Holy Spirit. So I pray, Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on us this morning. Enable us to hear your truth. Enable me to speak your truth. Enable all of us to apply your truth. And as always, we pray this first and foremost for the honor of Christ, then for the welfare of his people, and for the success of the strategic mission he has left to us in this world. And as always, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. And as we study God's Word together today, may the Lord be with you. Today I want to focus on the subject of words in general, and then give the bulk of my time to focusing on one word in particular. I want to begin by reminding you the effect of words, the influence of words, simply can't be overstated. Words have the power to fire the imagination and then forge our realities. Words have the power to promote love and inspire peace, but we also know they have the power to provoke hate and instigate wars. Words have the power to cement relationships, but they also have the power to sever relationships. Words can wound us. Words can bring healing. Words can liberate our souls. Words can imprison our souls. Yesterday morning, I was talking to one of our female members whose spirit was literally imprisoned four years ago by a word that was spoken about her and to her. And as she shared that word, you could still see the effects of it upon her soul. Words have tremendous power. They can point us towards life or they can seduce us toward death. Now, God understands the power of words far better than you and me. After all, God used words to form this universe. The Lord said, and it was. 
He spoke the worlds into existence. And Paul, in his letter to the Colossians, says something many believers forget. He says that Christ holds the universe together by the word of his power. But unfortunately, God isn't alone in understanding the power of words. His chief adversary understands the power of words. When God describes Satan as a liar and the father of lies, he was reminding us, no, he was warning us that Satan's chief weapons are words. Words that deceive, words that misguide the human heart. Satan understands something, though, about words. He understands that words by themselves are just like empty suitcases. Their power comes from the meaning that we pack into them. And that's why Satan's initial attacks against humanity focused on the meaning of words, specifically on the meaning of the words God had said about life and about death. Satan got alongside of Eve and Adam, and he said, is that really what God meant? Is that what God was really saying? And he implied that God's words were indicative of a conspiracy against Adam and Eve, that God was somehow holding out on them rather than holding on to them. And once they believed that lie, they allowed Satan to unpack the true meaning from God's words and repack them with lies. And once they acted upon those lies, spiritual death and physical death, two things we were never intended to experience, stepped into the human experience. But the door was opened by a faulty definition of God's words. Now, when Satan discovers something that works, he sticks with it. Have you noticed that in your own life? He, he doesn't tempt you with things that you've never really struggled with. He keeps coming back to the same old, same old, the things you've always had trouble with. He always holds on to something that works. And as a result, Satan continually seeks to corrupt the meaning of God's words and to distort God's definitions. He still whispers to the human heart, is that really what God meant? Is that really what God said? And have you noticed in our lifetime, we are seeing a wholesale spiritual attack against the true meaning of God's words. We're witnessing Satan standing God's words on their head so that he can empty them of divine meaning and then stand them back up again and pack them full of demonic meanings that are shaped by culture and shaped by human rebellion rather than informed by the Spirit of God. I began to make a list of some of the words, God's words, that are currently under attack, being redefined. And, and the list could be long, but here's just a few examples. Life, truth, holiness, love, marriage, sexuality, judgment, 
grace, commandment, heaven, hell. I've seen all of those words attacked in my lifetime. I'm watching the attack intensify. And Satan's attacks aren't confined to counterfeit spiritualities and counterfeit faiths. Many of them are aimed at the church. The reality is Satan attacks the meaning of God's words in the minds of God's people. The reason why we're called by Paul to the continual renewing of our minds is because our minds are continually under attack. And it stands to reason one of the strategic targets of Satan's attacks is our understanding of the word that represents the greatest threat to his agenda. That's the word I want to examine today. Like the word trinity or like the word rapture, this word isn't found in our English translations of the Bible. But the activity it describes is found everywhere in the scriptures. It's introduced in Genesis, it's summarized in Revelation, and it's reinforced everywhere in between. This word is the very centerpiece of scripture. This word is the continuing echo of God's great and loving heart. And I'm speaking of the word missions. Say that word with me, missions. The French moralist Joseph Joubert made this statement, quote, words are like eyeglasses. They blur everything that they don't make clear. Words are like eyeglasses. They blur what they don't make clear. Now, I learned that as a child the first time I put on somebody else's glasses. Do you remember doing that when you were a kid? You put on somebody else's glasses and generally everything is blurred because it's not the right prescription for you. And that's what Joubert was referring to. Words are like that as well. Words can make things clear, but words can also blur things. Now, I learned that as a child, but Satan learned it before the world was formed. And as a result, Satan seeks to distort the meaning of the word missions so that the church isn't clear about its mission. He wants to blur God's command. Now, Satan knows where the word missions is understood and embraced. It leads to three things. Contagious passion, continual sacrifice, and a clarity of purpose. He also knows where the meaning of missions is blurred, it leads to contagious apathy, continuing selfishness, and clouded purpose. And those three things serve him well. Now, the meaning of the word missions is currently blurred in our culture and certainly blurred within Christian circles in our nation. If you doubt that, go home and Google the meaning of, quote, missions, end quote. You'll discover lengthy articles, entire books devoted to debating what is missions, what isn't missions, what is the meaning of the word missions. And you quickly discover that missions is often in the eye of the beholder. It depends on who's defining it. But that wasn't always the case. 
In the period known as the Great Modern Missionary Movement, from the 18th century to the end of the 20th century, the definition of missions was generally understood by believers in our culture and generally accepted. If you ask somebody in the 20th century, what do you mean by missions, they likely would have responded with a definition like this. Missions is the activity of set-apart messengers sent out to other cultures for the purpose of communicating God's truth to people who have never heard it. Missions was seen as similar to evangelism, but different from evangelism. Evangelism was seen as believers sharing the good news of the gospel in their own community, with their own family, with their own friends, with their own circle of influence, in their own cultural context. And evangelism was seen as the responsibility of every believer. Jesus said, you will be my witnesses. Missions was seen as a very specific call for just a few of God's people who were to go to another culture with the support of everyone who remained behind. So the general understanding was that we are all called to be witnesses and a few of us are called to be missionaries. That distinction was clear. That distinction was understood. But today, things have changed radically. Now, a whole host of things have led to that change, and all of them are good in and of themselves. But when you put them together, it's made a bit of a mess. First of all, the world's religions have now come to our doorstep. There is a Muslim, Muslim gathering place just a block from my back door here on the north side. In addition, our own increasingly secular culture is now being described as a mission field. In many places, the church has rediscovered what it should have never forgotten, the social dimension of the gospel and the need of God's people to do justice. In addition, our nation is awash in problems that seem to defy solution. And now we find ourselves on the cusp of a presidential election where, I don't know about you, but I can't get excited about either candidate because some of them are so far afield from God's word, it really is choosing the lesser of two evils, whatever that is. In addition, many of God's people have taken what we call short-term missions trips, going into another cultural setting for anywhere from a week to perhaps a year or so. Now, in the midst of all these and other factors, the meaning of the word missions has become blurred. It's now common to hear Christians say, every believer is a missionary. Personally, when I hear that, I just want to shout, no, that's wrong. It's not, also not uncommon to hear people say, everything the church does is missions. And again, I want to shout, no, that's inaccurate. And I'm afraid the meaning of the word missions has become so broad that it's essentially lost its meaning altogether. I'm inclined to agree with the missions historian Stephen Neal, who made this often quoted statement, if everything is missions, then nothing is missions. If everything is missions, the word loses all of its meaning, and then nothing is missions. And I don't think my disagreement, or excuse me, my agreement with Neil's observation, indicates that I'm getting old and stuck in the past. I want to remind you we're all getting old. I've never met anybody who's getting young. 
And ain't none of us getting out of here alive. But I have no interest, again, in holding on to the paradigms of the past. I've spent 40 years of pastoral ministry leading massive change. ACAC moved from monocultural and bigoted to multicultural and diverse. That's change. That's bigger change than repainting the sanctuary. So I, I'm, no, I'm not afraid of change. But I agree with Neil because personal observation has taught me that a specific task can easily be lost if it's wrapped inside of a generalized, vague command. Now, let me give you an example. Why didn't God in the New Testament simply say to husbands, husband, love your wives, and end it there? Husbands, love your wives. Why didn't it end there? Well, I don't have it on direct authority. That's above my pay grade, but I've got a hunch. God didn't end it there because if all he had said was husbands love your wives, love can be such a vague, broad term that it essentially loses all meaning. And if God just simply said husbands love your wives, he would have left it up to men to pack the meaning of love into the word. And guys, you know, we love to take the course of least resistance. If it had been up to men to define what it means to love your wife, we likely would have reduced the meaning of love to little more than having warm feelings, saying nice things, buying the occasional present, working hard to pay the bills, and not asking for intercourse every night. That would have been our comfortable, convenient definition of love. So God didn't stop, husbands love your wives. He continued. He started to pack the word with meaning. As Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might present her without spot or wrinkle or blemish or any such thing, that she might become all she was intended to be. Now, that's a lot of content. You can't hide in there. <laughs> and when you understand that, you realize that when God called man to be the head of the home, he was making him the chief servant in the home. I always say when I'm performing a wedding ceremony, the man who understands headship as my way or the highway, there's a biblical term for him, jerk. <laughs> the reality is, husbands, God didn't give you your wife so that she could make you happy. That's not her assignment. God gave you a wife so that in cooperation with him, you could help her become holy. That's your assignment. Because that's what it means to love your wife as Christ loved the church. Christ is always working as the one who lays down his life so that we can become whole. The task of the husband is to lay down his life so that his wife can be everything God intended her to be and in so doing become like Jesus himself. If more Christian families understood this, we'd have less divorce among Christian men and women. 
And many times, our divorces that occur within the church aren't the result of a lack of counseling. Most folks that get divorced have been counseled out the wazoo. It's a lack of character. You can't counsel yourself around obedience. Counseling is not a detour away from unselfishness and godliness. If you aren't willing to be unselfish and godly, then you can counsel till the cows come home, but you won't have a healthy marriage. So God packed the word with meaning, with specific activities. Now, in similar fashion, I believe that missions needs to be specific or the specifics of missions will be lost altogether. What are the specifics? Good news for you. There are just two. Missions involves people who have been set apart by the Holy Spirit. Say set apart. apart. Say it again. Set apart. See, Barnabas and Saul, the first cross-cultural missionaries of the New Testament era, didn't volunteer to go to Cyprus because they were looking for a new, fun, cultural experience. They didn't go to Cyprus in pursuit of some new entry in their compassion resume. They didn't go to Cyprus because it presented some incredible opportunities for inspiring selfies. Look at me with these poor, neglected kids. Aren't I noble? I I hate to see people pimp the poor for their own resume. Goes on all the time in the name of compassion. And Paul and Barnabas didn't go to Cyprus because they just felt like they needed to make a difference. They went because they were called by the Holy Spirit in such a clear and defining way that the entire faith community in Antioch discerned it and affirmed it. And they were called to a task that wasn't an opportunity for selfies. They were called to a task that would prove to be extremely difficult, extremely dangerous, and life-threatening. But they were called. And the whole community heard the voice of the Spirit so that the text says it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to the church to set apart Barnabas and Saul. So missions involves people who have been set apart by the Spirit. Secondly, missions involves people who have been sent out. Say those words. Sent out beyond the immediate boundaries of the local church. It introduces God's kingdom in places where it's currently unknown. Now, Jesus, in our opening words, made it clear. The gospel was not to be confined to the Jewish community in Jerusalem and Judea. It was to be taken to the ends of the earth, to the Samaritans whom they hated, and to the Gentiles whom they hated even more. And the church in Antioch understood that. They not only embraced their responsibility to people in their own community, they embraced their responsibility to the world. That's what a mature church does. And that's why they obediently sent their best and their brightest to Cyprus. Don't kid yourselves. 
Barnabas and Saul were the most powerful, experienced, informed, and anointed leaders in the church of Antioch. They had apostolic credentials from the Holy Spirit. And yet that church was willing to send their best and brightest away so that Jesus could be known by people in another cultural context. Now when you understand missions involve set-apart people who are sent out to another context, then you realize Jesus was the first missionary in human history. He was set apart by God the Father. His set-apart mission was endorsed by the Holy Spirit at his baptism. And he was sent out to another culture. Because trust me, when Jesus left heaven and came here, that was a cross-cultural experience. He left everything he had ever known to embrace everything that he had never known. When you understand missions in that way, it also reminds you that missions doesn't have to involve a plane ticket. You don't have to cross an ocean or a national boundary. As we are reminded last week by T.V. Thomas, God, through the Worldwide diaspora is sending many immigrants to our nation where there is the opportunity for set-apart people to be sent out by the church to immigrant populations in their own communities, such as we're doing with the Bantus from Somalia in Northview Heights. So I often have people say, what's the difference, is there a difference between outreach and missions? And I like to say, absolutely. Outreach is the church making an impact where it is. Missions is the church making an impact by going where it isn't. So there's a difference between outreach and missions. And I wish more believers understood that. Because if we don't understand that, again, if everything is called missions, and if everybody is a missionary, well, then, then we lose those distinctives. We lose our focus. You know, it, it's been my experience on occasion to watch a missionary, an alliance missionary, visiting in our church. And I know I'm looking at somebody who despite a master's degree or more, was willing to embed themselves in a culture where linguistically and socially they started at the level of a five-year-old. Let me tell you, that's tough. Any missionary who will be honest with you will tell you. Very hard going from being an educated, proficient person in your own culture and functioning at a less than fifth grade level in somebody else's culture. So I, I watch people who've experienced that, people who've left family and friends behind to live somewhere on the other side of the globe, people who've done the tough task of learning a whole new language till they're proficient in it, people who have embraced the task of learning a new culture so that they don't make missteps as they communicate the gospel, people who many times have exposed themselves to viruses and diseases for which their body has no natural immunities. People who put themselves in communities where health care like we have here is, isn't readily available to them. People who put themselves in situations where their lives are literally at risk because they represent Jesus. And I watch people like that visiting 
amazing. And I watched somebody who recently was part of uh, packing backpacks for kids return to school, and, and they come up to the first person and say, I'm a missionary too. I just want a ghetto slap. Are you a missionary? I'm a missionary too. And the missionaries are too kind to tell you what they're thinking. What they're thinking is, honey, you don't know up from down. You're a follower of Jesus, yes. You're a witness, yes. You're a servant, yes. But you're not a missionary. You're not a missionary. It's not a matter of hierarchy, better or worse, but there is a difference. There is a difference. And trust me, if you were living like most of our missionaries are living, you'd know there's a difference. There's a huge difference. How do you think they feel when somebody comes up and says, oh, we've been uh, doing neighborhood cleanup days in our neighborhood, and, and, and we've been handing out coats, and we've been, and again, these are all good things the church should be doing, and, and, and that's missions. No, it isn't. Those are good deeds. But that's not missions. Or I hate it when people say, well, America's a mission field. No, it isn't. Anybody living in this country who wants to know about Jesus could find out everything they need to know in a half an hour. They could walk into a church, they could turn on a television, they could turn on their phone. They could turn on their computer. They could go to people who give them a free Bible. Or they probably wouldn't need to ask more than five or ten people till they discover somebody who knows Jesus that could tell them. America is a nation gone the wrong way, and it's full of a lot of lost people. But it's not a mission field. Our problem is overexposure. We're so overexposed to the gospel, many Christians don't even know what it means to be Christian. One final thought. Maybe I should say one final caution. The work of mission is not only hindered by vague, erroneous definitions, it's hindered by false dichotomies, false either-or statements. I've heard people say, well, why should the church send people around the world at great expense when there are people right across the street who have need? And to that, I want to say, why should the church spend all of its efforts on people across the street who have need when there are people halfway around the world who have need? You see, it's not an either-or. That's a false dichotomy. The reality is, God calls us to local compassion and global compassion, and he didn't say pick one. Now, what I often hear is, but, but our people here have such great needs. Well, let, let's think about the first missionaries, Barnabas and Saul. They were Jews. What was the state of the Jewish community in their day? The Jews were economically impoverished because of the taxation of Rome. The Jews were a tyrannized and oppressed people. The Jews had virtually no rights in the face of Rome. Jews could be slaughtered at Rome's whim. Jews didn't even matter. Jews weren't considered to be important. So Saul and Barnabas' homies, their people, 
were in deplorable, difficult conditions. But Barnabas and Saul didn't say, our own people are suffering. Why in the heck would we go and talk to Gentiles in Cyprus? They went. And while they went, they informed the new believers in other parts of the world about the needs of their own people so that Paul took offerings wherever he went and sent them back to alleviate the plight of his Jewish brothers and sisters back in Jerusalem and Judea. He had nearby compassion. He had faraway compassion. It's not either or. Don't tell me, oh, we, look, if, if all we do is focus on the physical needs of people here. It means we don't give a tinker's damn about the spiritual needs of people halfway around the world. And that, my friends, is not like Jesus. God so loved the world that he gave his son so that the world might know him and so that around his throne there might be those of every tribe and every tongue and every nation. Here's the other false dichotomy, the one between preaching and social action. And, and we're seeing a host of new churches emerging that promote this dichotomy. They don't want to say a lot about the gospel because that offends people. They're just going to lead people to Jesus by doing nice stuff. And they call themselves missional. We're a missional church. I call them misguided. And, and frequently, they quote St. Francis, who allegedly said, preach the gospel at all times, and when necessary, use words. And they put that on their websites. And the inference is, the most effective way to communicate Jesus is by doing nice things for people. Here's the problem. St. Francis never said it. St. Francis never would have said it. He was part of a preaching-teaching order. <laughs> he existed to preach and teach. And what those churches forget when they do that and call themselves missional is that they are placing a higher value on serving the global hurting than they are on saving the global lost. And in the eternal scheme of things, that's a horrific surrender. What they forget is while they're attempting to embody the gospel, to flesh it out, one of the most important parts of Christ's body that we're called to flesh out, his mouth. Jesus went everywhere preaching and teaching. You don't embody Jesus if you don't speak Jesus' words. But then I would offer you what Paul said in Romans 10. How will they believe in him if they haven't heard? How will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they're sent? Did you hear it? Paul didn't say, how will they know about Jesus, know that they're lost, know about the cross, know about the resurrection, unless they see you feeding the hungry and doing good deeds in your community? No, he didn't talk about seeing, he talked about hearing. How will they believe if they don't hear? How will they hear if somebody doesn't preach? How will somebody preach if they aren't sent? They aren't sent. One of my great concerns is that the millennial generation is being betrayed by teaching like this. They're being called to be missional, and they're actually being called away from being faithful to the commission of Christ. One of my passions is to ensure that the millennial generation hears what Jesus knows they need 
rather than hearing what the culture tells them they should want. And honey, there's a big difference. So what's in a word? Well, when the word is missions, more is in it than we can imagine. God's heart is in that word. The authority of Scripture is in that word. The hope of lost people everywhere is in that word. The identity of the church is in that word. It was my privilege, among many places I've been, to preach in the bush in Guinea, West Africa, in a mud hut with a tin roof during a horrific downpour where I had to shout to be heard and then wait for the French interpreter and then wait for the Baoli interpreter and then start it all over again. It's a real tough way to preach. But in front of me were a whole group of young African men. Their bare arms had scars like the rungs of a ladder, very visible, very obvious, where in the past they had cut themselves to appease demonic spirits and ward off curses. But they were there to hear me share the gospel because they had come to Jesus. And I watched them enthusiastically worshiping in conditions most of you wouldn't accept. And nobody was complaining about volume or music style or all the other crap Christians specialize in. <laughs> no, they were just glad to be there out of the bondage to the demonic in the freedom of Christ, and they were willing to stay there all night. Why? Because somebody who was set apart was sent out from the alliance in the United States to embed themselves in the bush of Guinea, to live there, to risk their lives there, to kill poisonous serpents there, to deal with tropical diseases there, to learn the language there so that they might lead those people out of the demonic into the light of Christ. And I was standing before people who are the fruit of people who understood the meaning of the word mission. So don't hear me today as speaking ill of local ministry. We do tons of local ministry here, and I want to see us add to it. And, and, and much of it is about health care and legal and school and education, as it should be. That's the work of the gospel. But don't call it missions. Call it local outreach. Keep the biblical meaning of missions or we'll lose missions all together. And is that happening? Century ago, the average church gave 15 to 20 percent of its offerings to missions. Today, in America, it's less than 2 percent. So you tell me, are we losing track of the word? Let's pray together. Father, we have an obligation to a lost and hurting world. We'll never meet it if we don't understand the meaning of this simple word, missions. So, Lord, help us to unpack the word of the demonic. Help us to repack it with the divine. And help us to be people who are passionate about all people hearing Jesus. And we pray that in his great name. Amen.